you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You're listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Oh man, I think we're, we're, we're definitely privileged with this episode. What kind of privilege? Sixth Sense privilege? <laughs> Sixth Sense privilege. <laughs> Sixth Sense yeah. privilege? All right, all right, cool. All right, that's good, that's good. Yes, um, we do have a special guest on the show. Uh, we have Candice Malcolm. Welcome, Candice. Hi guys, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Uh, so for, th- for those of you who don't know, Candace is a best-selling author, investigative journalist, a nationally syndicated columnist with the Toronto Sun, and the founder and editor-in-chief of the of Toronto, or sorry, of True North. Uh, she has reported from war zones, broken news stories that have made headlines worldwide, and exposed major terrorist networks operating in Canada. Uh, born and raised in Vancouver, BC, Candace has two master's degrees and lives in Toronto with her husband and son. So, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. That's a good introduction. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Darnell does really good homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, but I heard you're, you're not in Toronto right now. Yeah. So, we, we just came down to the Bahamas for a little bit of a staycation. My, my husband works for a tech company and they went completely remote. And so we could basically all of a sudden work from anywhere. So we decided to have a little adventure and come down to the Bahamas for a few months. Okay, so nice, because down here. Um, I, I went to the Bahamas for my honeymoon. Cool. Uh, I stayed at uh, the Sandals Resort. Mm-hmm. Five star, no kids. If you, guys haven't been, <laughs> if you guys haven't been to a resort with no kids, all right, yeah. check it out and let me know what you think. <laughs> uh, that's good, that's good. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in accounting. So, you know, I've sort of moved to fully remote and me and my wife have more and more been talking like, hey, if we lock down again in Canada, like, where are we going? Because like, what's the point of being here, especially with the winter coming? Well, yeah, we kind of like barely survived the winter because we had a little baby in the house and both me and my husband were trying to work and, you know, it's, it's hard to get anything done with with a little guy. But the worst thing was that we were stuck inside because it was cold. So we're like, hey, you know, worst case scenario, there's another lockdown. At least we can sit outside. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's it's been a crazy time. So uh, before before we get into that, why don't you uh, give the listener a little bit of background in terms of, you know, True North, creating it, what that process was like, why you, you know, essentially felt the need to be more independent. Um, yeah. Why don't you give the listener a little bit of background on, on that journey? Yeah, sure. Sure. So, uh, basically, I mean, I wasn't always a journalist. I sort of started out doing more sort of think tanky stuff. I uh, went to the University of Alberta and ended up working for the Fraser Institute after that, which is sort of a economic uh, libertarian think tank based out of Vancouver. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're familiar with them. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So I worked there for a little bit, decided to go back and do my uh, graduate studies. Actually, I noticed you guys just did a, an interview with Danby Samoyo and interesting because I, uh, I I did grad studies and I was looking at foreign aid and economic development in the least developed countries in the world. And I, I, I love Debbie Samoyo. I used her book, uh, Dead Aid, uh, for, for much of my critique and, and I wrote my master's thesis on that topic. 
Um, anyway, after that, I went and worked for a libertarian think tank down in Washington, D.C. and sort of did the rounds there for a bit, decided to come back to Canada and work in politics. I ended up working for uh, the Harper government. Uh, Jason Kenney was the Minister of Immigration and kind of in line with sort of foreign aid economic development, I was interested in immigration and did that for a little bit, was his press secretary. And that was kind of how I transitioned over into the media side. I know a lot of journalists go into politics because they cover politics. I was kind of the opposite. I was in politics and then I decided to go over into the media that way. Um, and I, I think that perspective sort of made me realize that things in Ottawa were pretty one-sided um, f- f- from, from sort of more of a liberal establishment perspective. Like, like having conservatives in Ottawa and having conservatives in, in office was, was a, like a thorn in the side for so many people in that town, people in the bureaucracy and the mainstream media. It was like they had never heard conservative arguments and they were sort of almost like offended by them. And mm. I, I kind of saw the need for more conservative voices in the media to be telling the other side of the story and to sort of be reporting that way. So I started out as an, an opinion columnist writing opinion for the Toronto Sun. And I got more and more opportunities to write stories, do investigative reports, and sort of start digging into some things. And that was when I sort of launched True North. Um, initially, True North was more of a sort of think tank. Like and I, the idea was uh, to, to, to do research and sort of independent study on issues around immigration in Canada. But what I found was that my audience was more and more interested in journalism. Like they were kind of like, okay, the, the academic reports and the white papers and whatever, you, you know, that, that stuff is not really as interesting as the sort of on the ground reporting. Like we want to hear more about, you know, uh, the things that I was looking at at the time, which were terrorist groups and organizations that were connected to, um, you know, Middle Eastern uh, schemes to, to, to be funding groups like Hezbollah and Hamas. And uh, that, that was sort of how it started. And then in the last couple of years, we just sort of expanded, um, hiring new journalists, doing more reports, more podcasts, and kind of turned ourselves into more of like a full-fledged online media uh companies so it's been Mm -hmm. it's been a fun kind of ride to transition i've been doing it for about the last five years or so and i mean it's fun you know we're we're growing we're hiring new people our engagement's really high we're raising lots of money and uh, it feels like we're doing a lot of things right i I really just think it's because of the media landscape which in canada is so sort of one-sided right now wow uh, yeah. You made a, an interesting point that I observed. I didn't, I didn't think anybody else was noticed it, but um, when I'm curating um, and trying to to find episode ideas and content, I um, I check out a lot of uh, think tanks, and I do notice that a lot of times the research that they do is great, but it's not practical for the common person to make the connection between. Um, the work that they do. So, so for me, I'm always trying to do the work of trying to translate all this academic stuff and make it palatable for, um, for the common person. So yeah, I, I do notice that sometimes as much as I appreciate um, the think tanks and the work that they do, sometimes it, it, it goes a bit over the head of, of the common people. It, well, yeah. And like, there's so, there, there's so many different roles to be played, right? There, there's room for academics in society to be sort of studying original ideas and and looking into the sort of foundation foundational philosophies 
And then from there, you know, you have the think tanks that are applying those academic theories to public policy and trying to come up with sort of like high level solutions. But then, you know, you also need influencers and mediaries between those sort of academic and think tanks to mainstream society. And that, that was that was sort of where I found my niche. It's like there's not that many people out there that you know, like you said, can take the the sort of like high level arguments and then just try to like apply them more broadly or apply them to the day to day political issues um, that matter, which, you know, in, in some ways it's such an important role because you're the ones that are in influencing and, and speaking to more people. And, uh, you know, for True North, I think it's certainly there's an appetite for it. Pe people feel like, again, they're, they're not really getting a good service from the mainstream media, which in Canada, frankly, it's 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 pretty monotonous, pretty boring. Like everyone has very similar opinions and similar takes on things. And so it's like, hey, let's we want something different. We want something uh, a little bit outside of the traditional norm. And I think that's what like why so many people are turning to podcasts, turning to alternative independent media. Um, and we're just sort of in the right place at the right time. Okay. Yeah, you know, as a as an entrepreneur, like the economic side of me, I, I love that you know you're sort of the the story of I hear you know you heard your audience and you shifted according to you know meeting your audience's needs. Um, you know, I just I I sort of makes me think about the landscape with regards to you know CBC being publicly funded, and I wonder if you could maybe speak to to sort of the independent journalism slash you know government funding and and any of the the just be, obviously it gets a little technical, but some of the regulatory burden and, and difficulties that that maybe that has created for you, um, you know, being more independent. Sure. Well, I'll just, I'll just give you one sort of statistic that help can help like listeners think about what's going on, right? So during uh, the the COVID lockdowns, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau would give these sort of morning addresses every day, kind of updating the public about what was happening in Canada. We were told at the time, I mean, they, they, they had already shut down Parliament. So they, they, they said, we can't hold Parliament, it's too dangerous, we're going to try to do virtual Parliament, but we're only going to do it once a week. And instead, the Prime Minister is just going to address the country every single morning in front of sort of hand-picked members of the mainstream media. They wouldn't let True North in, they wouldn't let other sort of independent or conservative media in, but they would let members of the parliamentary press gallery. Well, we did a, a study, an analysis, that found that the CBC was able to ask about half of the questions at those daily reportings. So, you know, here you have a government-funded state broadcaster. They get $1.2 billion a year from the taxpayer. Uh, their editorial position is, is pretty solidly on the left, center-left or left-wing. And they're the ones that get to sort of like lead the charge, set the agenda, set the narrative, and the rest of the parliamentary press gallery just sort of go along with those storylines. They're very sort of Quebec-centric, very central Canada-centric, and they don't really reflect the views of all Canadians. And so that's part of the problem with the, with the landscape. And then, of course, on top of that, you also have the fact that Trudeau gave the newspaper industry a $600 billion bailout, essentially, and there's several other government programs out there that support uh, salaries of journalists. So when you start to look at who, who are the people that are holding the prime minister accountable, and, and you start to connect the dots between how many of them are funded either directly or through a grant um, or, or owned um, by, you know, funding from the federal government, it's like, you know, how, how is this a free press? How is this a free society? How, 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 is, this, how is this transparency and accountability of our, our democratically elected leaders? 
it isn't. And, and again, I think that's why so many people begin to mistrust the mainstream media. They start to see through the sort of narrative um, that, that there is, and they look, look to independent people. And it really is sort of CBC at the center of it all. Uh, th th I think that that's, that's sort of where the problem stems. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely get into CBC, but I had a question. I'm all about the defund CBC hashtags. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, I had a question in regards to um, you doing independent journalism. And Joel and I kind of fell into becoming independent journalists when we started the podcast. Like we didn't know, we weren't paying attention to that. We were just, you know, two, having conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two guys who, you know, we have our schools of thought. And so as we were starting to cover the news, we started to slowly get pulled into the world of journalism. And just like, um, you know, your listeners and our, our listeners are kind of, they want more um, journalism. So what advice would you give to Joel and I in the Sixth Sense Report and, and, and continuing to, to build our platform? Well, I think you guys are doing something great just in sitting down and having conversations. I think one of the biggest problems facing Canadians right now is that so many people are sort of almost paralyzed by political correctness and self-censorship, uh, whether it's self-censorship or you know, censorship from, from you know, social media companies or, or uh, you know, other places. And so you know, just the fact that you are willing and, and, and frankly, courageous enough to tackle big issues that, that many other people shy away from. I think that's what people are looking for. They're looking for authenticity. They're looking for people who will address and, and discuss the sort of thorny issues, no matter how uncomfortable they can be. Um, you know, as far as sort of the, 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 the media landscape, I, I mean, again, the, the whole idea that so this is coming from sort of the mainstream media perspective, and I know these people and I interact with them and I've known them for a long time. They kind of have a narrow um, gatekeeper perspective. They think that they, you know, they're the journalists, they're part of the parliamentary press gallery, or they're part of the sort of mainstream media, and they get to determine what is news. And, and anyone who is sort of independent, they just like scoff at or look down their nose or say like, you know, you're, you're not providing a valid service. You see it a lot in the rhetoric around the federal government that, you know, there's so much misinformation out there and that we need sort of these trusted voices. Uh, supposedly the CBC is the one that is a trusted voice. But again, you know, if, if you're someone who pays attention and if you're not someone who subscribes to the sort of you know, capital L liberal worldview, you, you'll see a lot of like, <laughs> you know, holes in their reporting or, you know, just the bias is, is maddening for so many Canadians that don't share those views. So I, I think it is tough for, for young, you know, ambitious, hard-hitting journalists to break into that world because there's this sort of old boys club that's protected. And I, I don't know if it happens to you guys, it happens to me a lot, where the sort of establishment gatekeeper types will go out of their way to constantly try to discredit you. Um, of course, and and it's like, you know, obviously they're threatened or they're scared or whatever. But it's like, come on, as someone who works in this profession, a journalist, you you should fundamentally be for uh, an open exchange of ideas and a marketplace of ideas and free speech and free open dialogue. That that should be like your your first principle. Um, and it's mm -hmm. kind of shocking that so many journalists have the opposite perspective. Their their first principle is like. No, we have to censor voices that we disagree with, or we have to stop independent journalists. Uh, they can't be trusted, and 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 sort of again, just kind of making the case for how 
the, the old guard is really not the, not the ones that, that should be trusted to make these kind of decisions or set the rules. I, I sort of have a, a really quick follow-up in that. I've been kind of using this line with people, and I wonder if you, you think it's accurate. I've been saying we've really lost this concept of objective reporting. And so much of it has become, you know, we used to have like 90% objective reporting with sort of editorials on the side. And now it's like 90% editorials. And, and but it's being presented as sort of the old school news. But in reality, it, it sort of lacks that objective nature, lacks the conversation. And so uh, I'm wondering if you think that's a fair categorization. And, you know, how does that, you know, lead into sort of the throne speech and how that's covered? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, th I definitely think it's a broader, bigger conversation. I, I think that if you look at sort of the history of news, it, it has changed and shifted multiple times. I, actually, I just did a, a panel a couple of weeks ago, and uh, w one of the um, other panelists was Ken White, who was a longtime publisher and editor of Maclean's, and um, he, he does a lot of other things now. He's an author. And he's sort of like an old, old school uh, journalist and publisher. And, and he sort of made this argument that, um, you know, because of the changing funding model, like before, you know, everyone used to basically, like the, the, the news industry was funded by um, advertisements and the advertisements wanted news to be sort of mild and open to everyone. You had to appeal to everyone. So you couldn't take a strong, you know, a perspective one way or another. You just had to kind of be as neutral as possible. Um, but that's completely changed now because of Google and Facebook. And so it kind of opens us up to having more uh, opinion and ideas and almost more ideological news from, from, from the left and from the right. And I, I think you're seeing that a lot. And it kind of creates eco chambers and, and there's all kinds of other problems. But from my perspective, it's like, you know, we, we at True North, yeah, we have a small C conservative worldview. And we're open about that and our viewers know that and our readers know that and our critics know that like we're completely objective about that we say we have an editorial position it's more to the right it's it's based on our conservative values um this is our news you know our, our reports are objective our investigative reporting is just investigative reporting and then when you listen to our podcasts and when you read our editorials you walk away with a conservative opinion um my critique is that on the other side, they're not open and transparent about that. They're, you know, a lot of the mainstream media outlets, a lot of the big mm. newspapers, the TV stations are providing that for the liberals, but they just, they just don't admit it. They don't admit they're center left. They try to pretend that they're still objective when really we all know that they're not. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and how does that, I mean, in terms of, so going back to the throne speech, you know, how does that, I mean, I would say, you know, for the listeners, maybe you can contextualize. I, I mean, you guys have done a lot. I'm assuming, uh, to be honest, I couldn't sit through three and a half hours, um, to get through all of it. Um, I'm assuming as part of your job, it was essentially a requirement, uh, or at mm -hmm. least, you know, the majority of it. Um, and, and so I have sort of two questions. What, what about the content? But also, do you still do you see similar um, responses with regards to how it's being reported on? Uh, sorry, before before you start, Candice, I just wanted to sure. um, clarify for the listeners who don't know what the purpose of um, what the what the uh, speech from the throne is. And so, I'm just going to read just a quick blurb from the government of Canada on what it is, okay. just to give some context. Okay, so so the speech from the throne opens every new session of Parliament. The speech introduces the government's direction and goals and outlines how, to, how it will work to achieve them. 
the Senate and the House of Commons cannot conduct public business until Canada's head of state or their representative reads the speech. Traditionally, the governor general reads the speech as the Queen's representative in Canada. In 1957 and 1977, the Queen was in Canada and chose to read the speech herself. It is called the speech from the throne because the governor general reads the speech from the seat or the throne in the Senate chamber reserved for the Queen or her representative in Canada. Members of the House of Commons, senators, justices of the Supreme Court of Canada, and other are invited guests attend the reading of the speech. Uh, yeah, so, so that, that's a very sort of technical, historical understanding of what the throne speech is. Now, Darnell, your listeners may be wondering, wait a minute, you know, why, is this, why are we opening a new session of parliament now? Right. Usually it only happens after an election, which is why there's so much ceremony and pomp. And you know, if, if anyone watched it or caught some of it on the news, it's really a, 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 a sort of relic of the British monarchy and our, our sort of traditional parliamentary democracy system. Um, which, which is all well and good. Uh, it's not supposed to be partisan. It's not supposed to really be political. It's mostly about the business of the government. The problem is that the whole thing um, this week predicated on basically a scheme by the prime minister to avoid scrutiny um, and avoid getting himself into another political scandal. So, you know, we had an election in, this, um, in the fall of 2019 Trudeau won a minority government, we had a throne speech, and we're supposed to govern. And sure, it's a minority government, so these things can fall at any time. Um, when there's a majority government, it means that one party has enough votes to carry any, any vote in the House of Commons. A minority government is much more unstable because any time there is a vote, uh, the government risks losing and, and, and throwing the country into an election. Um, so, so basically what happened was during the pandemic, um, like I said, Trudeau moved to a sort of uh, online version of parliament where they didn't have in-seat, in-house seatings. Uh, they didn't really have sessions. It wasn't really government as usual. It wasn't really business as usual, I should say, um, in the government. And, uh, you know, at that time, Trudeau was basically bringing out the wheelbarrow and spending tons and tons and tons of borrowed cash uh, to pump it into the economy to pay Canadians to stay at home, to pay businesses who are forced to shut down. Uh, of course, because any government would do this, they started handing out money to sort of pet projects and, and contractors and friends, and a lot of that money went unaccounted for. So by the time Parliament session started again, we had the WE scandal, which was uh, basically the Liberals decided to give a contract uh, worth $912 million um, to a charity that was basically in, in shambles, like <laughs> their CFO had just resigned, they were president, uh, chief chairman of the board had just resigned, they had laid off half of their employees. Um, they were going through some really financially um, murky things on, on their own right. Um, and then suddenly they were given this huge, massive mega contract from the Trudeau government. Uh, the Trudeau government insisted that it was the bureaucracy that had recommended it, that it wasn't a political decision at all. Uh, we had the uh, finance committee looking into it, basically investigating what had actually happened and going through records and, uh, you know, summoning emails and all this stuff, um, su summoning uh, people to come and speak and testify in front of the WE committee. So we saw the uh, Kielberger brothers, we saw a bunch of ministers come up and, and report the Prime Minister himself had to go and give his testimony. Basically what the WE committee found 
was that there was a whole bunch of inconsistencies, that Trudeau had not been honest, that it wasn't the public service at all that had made these recommendations. It was Trudeau PMO uh, staff and ministers in his government who had made this decision. And as soon as that all came to light, uh, they fired Bill Marneau, or Bill Marneau, the finance minister, resigned, and Trudeau prorogued parliament. Um, so, 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 so this is just all to say that... And sorry, what, you does, know, basically, what does prorogue... Um it's 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 like a it's like an archaic um, parliamentary tool that that usually only happens like in the rarest of times during like wartime or constitutional crisis uh, where the prime minister has the ability to go to the governor general and basically say I can't govern right now um, it's in the best interest interest of the democracy that we take a break and come back and start a new session. So it's, it's, it's basically never done. Um, Stephen Harper did it about a decade ago and it was a huge scandal at the time. <laughs> it was a huge, huge scandal. Um, the media sort of um, trumped it up. They had all these academics condemning it as an assault on democracy. Um, Harper did it because basically, he, he, Harper had won the election in 2006 with a minority and then the three opposition parties, the Bloc Quebecois, the Liberals, and the NDP were coming up with a plan to form a government. So they, they, they kind of said, even though the Conservatives got the most, got, won a minority government, um, we want to govern because we're going to create this coalition. And Har Harper said, no, no, you can't do that. Th that creates sort of a constitutional crisis because we would have a, a coalition between a separatist party and another party and, and, and sort of made the argument that it could lead to the separation of Canada, of Quebec from Canada. Um, and so he prorogued Parliament and it was a huge, huge deal. This time around, Trudeau prorogued Parliament and the media kind of like shrugged their shoulders and it was described as like a reset and, and it was like all just, you know, one of the things that a prime minister can do kind of thing. Um, so all, all that's just to say, you know, we had this throne speech this week essentially because Trudeau wanted to get out of the hot water he was in with the Wee scandal. He, he claimed himself um, that the reason for the prorogation and for shutting down Parliament and having this new throne speech was because he had this new vision for Canada, that, that he had this sweeping new plan um, when it came to dealing with COVID and the economic recovery, and that he really needed to like have a new session of Parliament to do this. I mean, I have no idea why he would need a new session of Parliament. It didn't really make sense. And then when we saw the, the throne speech on Wednesday, th there, was no, there was no new plan. <laughs> there was no sweeping vision. There was no huge reset. It, it was just like, he basically introduced this exact same thing that he had introduced in the fall of 2019. So again, it, basically all just a huge waste of time, uh, waste of resources. And we're basically right back to where we were about two months ago. Uh, where this we we uh, committee's um, investigation is going to start back up, and we're just going to kind of go back to business as usual, sort of the opposition trying to pick apart what Trudeau is doing, and Trudeau trying to sort of pretend that he's you know here to save Canada and he he's willing to throw money in like every corner of the economy basically. Right. Um, uh, as I was doing research for the show, I was listening to your colleague, uh, Andrew Lawton, the Andrew Lawton mm -hmm. show, the most reverent show. <laughs> <laughs> he is. <laughs> uh, this guy's funny. Yeah, it, but he, he was just saying that um, the speech wasn't supposed to be a political speech. 
Right. Well, and so that goes to, to, to the explanation um, that you read about how it's very ceremonial and the prime minister himself doesn't even read the speech, the governor general or the queen does, um, because it's supposed to be sort of like a high level. This is what the, this is what the government is going to do. Um, this is these are sort of like the, the values and the beliefs. Um, and this is the direction that we're headed as a country. Um, and then and then sort of on top of that, uh, this is this part is really inexplicable. So again, just like you know, prime ministers rarely ever prorogue parliament. Just like throne speeches are very rare; they usually just come after an election. Uh, the prime minister rarely, basically, never goes on primetime television to directly address the public. Like, like that's something that the U.S. president does. That's something that strong men do in authoritarian countries. It's not something that happens in a parliamentary democracy. It just isn't. Um, again, the, the, the few times it has ever happened in Canadian history have been during wartime, um, after the FLQ crisis, where there was terrorism in Quebec and, and the cabinet minister was killed, um, or during constitutional crises. So Trudeau and his handlers went to the major TV stations and networks on Wednesday and said, look, this is a like, national urgency. The prime minister needs to address the country. And so the TV stations all gave him, you know, prime time, 6.30, uh, address to the country, and, and it was on the basis that Trudeau promised that it was not political. So it was not going to be a partisan <laughs> speech. It wasn't political. It was a national urgency. So you kind of assume, okay, maybe maybe he's going to be talking about something to do with COVID. Maybe he's calling an election. Maybe there's some kind of crisis. Maybe he's resigning. You know, like thinking that there was something <laughs> big, and then and then of course Trudeau shows up and basically just repeats the throne speech, like. He, he just reiterated, you know, these are the four points from the throne speech, and it's so important that Canadians follow social distancing, and we don't want to have like another COVID spread. And you know, what, it, what it basically was a nothing burger, but you know, innately po political because he he was making the case for his government to survive through this minority session. And I, I think I think a lot of uh, a lot of journalists felt silly, um, felt duped because obviously they they had fallen for this and. Uh, basically just gave the prime minister like a 30 minute free ad <laughs> on network television during dinner time for, for Canadians to see him, which again, not something that's supposed to happen in Canada. Yeah. No, well, it's, it's funny because, um, Andrew was mentioning that, um, of course, like he was saying what you're saying that, that it wasn't necessary, but he was saying that, uh, the issues that were brought up of, uh, systemic racism, um, intersectional feminism, uh, bilingualism and, and and so forth um that his speech was bringing about division rather than unity in the country so he he was adamant about the fact that he he was only um fanning the flames and not trying to bring the country together about on ideas of what it really means reminding people what it really means to be a canadian life liberty uh free speech freedom of press and so forth yeah i think that's a really excellent point i mean Again, like the, the, the whole point of ending parliament and restarting it, it was supposed to be that the focus was supposed to be on how, how are we going to live with COVID? How are we going to deal with this in our lives as an ongoing basis? And how are we going to rebuild the economy in a meaningful way? You know, we still have record high unemployment. We're technically still in a recession. Lots and lots of small business owners have gone under. Their businesses have gone under. There's a huge, huge crisis in Alberta and the Western Canadian provinces with their industry. You know, just uh, unimaginable uh, unemployment, which creates all kinds of misery. And so 
you know, what, what you sort of expect from prime minister is to address all these issues and to, to kind of, you know, if he was going to spend six weeks doing nothing and then coming back with this big speech, come on, address the big issues. How, how are we going to live with COVID? Uh, what are we going to do? Is there going to be a way that we can better test? You know, are we going to come up with antibody tests? Where are we in regard to a vaccination? How are we going to live with this? And on the flip side, you know, how, how are we going to allow the economy to recover? How are we going to get businesses going again? Um, you know, how are we going to get Canadians back to work? How are we going to start paying for some of the, the debt that we that we just put on the, the you know, the Canadian credit card uh, in, <laughs> in, to the tune of about half a billion, half a trillion dollars, sorry, in one year, the highest uh, deficit ever. Um, you know, anything like that. And again, yeah, addressing addressing issues of Canadian unity. You know, there's two separatist movements that are surging right now, one in Quebec and one in Alberta. And, you know, none of that was addressed. Trudeau didn't even mention the oil and gas sector, which is really, really struggling. Um, and instead, yeah, you saw the sort of, you know, the things that we've seen so much, the sort of left nods to left-wing identitarian sort of division and a, a lot of hectoring on, you know, systemic racism um, without really any solutions or any, any, any more, like, real thinking or depth on that, just sort of, you know, repeating the sort of popular trendy left-wing talking points and platitudes. Uh, I, I, yeah, a lot, a lot of divisive kind of language, nothing really looking at, at the big picture stuff and nothing about uniting the country, uh, you know, coming together, making sure that we, that we, we can get through this because, you know, we're, we're still in, in the midst of COVID. We, mm -hmm. we, there's no end in sight. And, you know, you're, you're starting to see a lot of the sort of social decay happening around us. And again, there's just nothing on the leadership side addressing any of that. It was just very much like a sort of calculated political speech. Mm -hmm. I, you, you touched on on essentially the, the second uh, separatist movement. I mean, I think most Canadians, at least, in, you know, my, my age group, grew up sort of hearing about Quebec was going to leave and it's sort of like, okay, that's, I guess, gone now to some extent. We sort of know about the party, but you know, the recent election, the the Wexit movement, when, you know, essentially you sort of had conservatives all across, um, you know, Western Canada. Um, and I, I sort of was like, oh, this is news. I never knew this existed. And, and even, you know, <laughs> I'll say now it seems to be something I thought was like, okay, I guess it's, you know, it'll be done until the next election. Um, but on on uh, the Kazingaram Dialogue where I, uh, podcast, I heard you sort of talk a little bit about it. So I was wondering if you could maybe tease it out a bit uh, for our listeners to understand maybe this, you know, the, the level of history as well as, you know, where is it at right now? Because your comments on that podcast made me think like, oh, wait, there's still something to this? Like, I thought it kind of died off because obviously in Ontario, we only talk about Ontario. Yeah, uh, but I just wanted to uh, shout out IJ. Um, that was a very good episode. We will put the episode in our show notes. Uh, oh, and uh, by the way, Candice, um, IJ says hi. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, he's he's an awesome guy. I really enjoyed uh, that that podcast. And I, I've been reading his blog a little bit. He's, he's pretty inspiring. It's funny, you know, m men have like an issue where they want to put on weight. So I read this blog post about how he was able yes. to like put on 30 pounds. In, yes, I read uh, it too. And, and I was like, you know what? Like... I, I would like to lose 30 pounds in that time. Like, you know, you have the, it's, it's funny. My husband's like that too. He's like constantly trying to put on weight and I'm like constantly trying to lose weight. It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, total differences definitely. between men and women. But uh, yeah, so as far as Alberta, um, 
separatist movement goes. I, I've kind of been interested in the movement for, for a while. I, I remember when I was in high school, I grew up in British Columbia, and I, we had a high school assignment that was like explore the history of Western separatism. And I, and I, I, no, you know, I had no idea, I'd never heard of it or anything like that. And I started to sort of look into it. And back in those days, it was like, there was a bunch of different ones and they were pretty kooky. Like there was a movement called Cascadia where they wanted to create like a block of Western states and provinces that would include like you know, British Columbia, Washington and Oregon and all this stuff. And I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like this. Like I, I spent a bit of time living in California and there's political movements to split California up into, into three different states or five different states. And you know, have California secede from the union, just like having Texas secede from from the American Union. But I think I think the Alberta one is a little different. And when you start looking at sort of the history of, of Alberta, the history of immigration to Alberta, which is pretty different than the rest of Canada, um, m much more Americans, many more Americans um, historically moved up there, not, not necessarily British, but Americans from different backgrounds. Um, you look at even just how they joined Confederation. You know, Canada was created in 1867. Alberta and Saskatchewan weren't able to officially join as provinces um, until 1905. Um, and they weren't given the same kinds of rights um, as British Columbia or other provinces. Um, there was issues with Sir John A. Macdonald's national policy, which basically created an artificial east-west uh, trade corridor and didn't allow like, local farmers to sell their grain to markets in the United States. They had to sell them uh, to Eastern Canada, Central Canada, which didn't allow them to make as much money because they had to spend money shipping it across the country and then sort of buying back uh, marked up manufactured goods that were manufactured in Ontario. So there's, there's sort of a sentiment in Alberta that, you know, they, they almost feel like they're a colony of mm -hmm. central Canada, not really an equal part mm. of the union. And then even, even when, um, even when they joined the, the Confederation in 1905, uh, Wilfrid Laurier was a prime minister and he basically said like, it, it was, it was, uh, historians describe it as like a crude partisan um, decision, but there, there was a, a push to have Alberta and Saskatchewan join as one large province that was going to be called Buffalo. And he decided to split it in half. He literally drew a line down the center um, without having ever been there, which is why the line between Alberta and Saskatchewan, the border is completely straight and it goes right through a town, Lloydminster, goes right through the middle of it. And the idea was that he didn't want uh, the Western province to ever have the political clout or the economic ability uh, to compete with Ontario and Quebec. Um, so, so, so all, all this is sort of like, you know, basic history about it. And I think, I think it really, the idea really exploded in the 80s uh, with Pierre Trudeau's national energy policy, uh, which bankrupted a whole bunch of energy companies. Trudeau basically wanted, uh, it was a national takeover of the industry. I feel like we're he having deja that. vu with that. Yeah, I know, exactly. Well, a lot of people think that like Western separatism comes from Justin Trudeau and it's just that like Westerners, conservatives hate Trudeau and that's that. But you no, know, it goes back to the, at least the first Trudeau, if not older. Um, but yeah, so the national energy policy was really bad <laughs> and uh, basically sought to like redistribute the wealth from Alberta's oil industry and and uh, lower prices for manufacturers in, in Ontario and Quebec. And it was a huge disaster. Um, Trudeau lost in a landslide in 1984 to Brian Mulroney and Mulroney ran on the campaign to just like abolish the NEP. 
Um, and then Western separatism, it kind of died down a little bit, although um, obviously, you know, the PC party broke up after Mulroney was in office. Um, the Western sort of sentiment, you, you saw it through the Reform Party and the Canadian Alliance, and then into Stephen Harper's uh, Conservative Party of Canada. Kind of the idea was like the West wants in, the West wants more representation, we want to reform the Senate, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then it kind of waned, but then when Trudeau got reelected, um, surged again. What I find interesting about it is uh, this time around, how seriously it's being taken. Like, you know, it's just not just a fringe idea. It's not just a bunch of rednecks, like, meeting and having rallies across the, the, the province. It's like, there's serious academic thinkers. There's very prominent businessmen, business people in, in Calgary that are starting to advocate for this. You, you hear about it more and more. And it's not just, you know, a group of outsiders. Like, this is, this is a serious issue. You look at some of the polling. Um, and there was a recent poll... Trying to think of who put it out, but it's not on the top of my head. Um, but basically, it found that 88 percent of people in Alberta and Saskatchewan feel that Ottawa doesn't represent them, and that Ottawa's lost touch with them. There was a Western Standard poll um, that found that 44 percent of people in Alberta would definitely or probably vote to secede if they could. Um, and so, you know, you're not just talking about like a fringe outside movement. You're talking about something that's very real um, to many, many people in Alberta who just feel like completely frustrated by the fact that uh, the government doesn't listen to them, the government doesn't address their concerns, that they're going through a major, major crisis right now um, because the biggest industry in the province, which is still sort of the biggest, one of the biggest sectors in the Canadian economy, um, is basically being suffocated um, intentionally through adversarial policies. Um, policies that are sort of being cheered on by many people in central Canada because of sort of, you know, th their, their position on global warming or their position on the use of fossil fuels, um, sort of, you know, kind of ideological reasons that are trumping the like real day-to-day -day suffering of people in Alberta. And it's not just an economic problem, right? Like when people are mass unemployed, when 50, 100,000, like hundreds of thousands of people lose their job. You have all kinds of other problems in society, like addiction, homelessness, spousal abuse, like the, the problems just stem from there. And so we're seeing this huge, massive social crisis in Alberta and, and it gets ignored. Like, like people don't know about it. People don't hear about it. They don't care. It's not, it's not a story on the news. It's not something the prime minister talks about. Like, you know, it's just like completely ignored. And I think that kind of adds to the frustration for people in Alberta. Yeah, I think uh, I want to say I heard this on on your podcast or, or a conversation you were having. I could be mistaken, but it uh, I heard the statement like Trudeau sort of making it sound like, oh, we're trying to get the pipeline. We're trying to help the province, but none of the parties and it just seems to break down. Um, and, and so you know, that seems to be a lot of the, the sediment behind it is sort of like, yeah, Alberta's resources, we don't really care. We're, we're pretending to care, but they're using every sort of parliamentary trick to shut down that. Um, and, and the other thing I maybe you can comment on was I remember during, you know, right after the election, when I first kind of got exposed to Wexit, 
I'd heard this line that I, I kind of made me think, oh, wait, this might be more serious, was sort of the, the history with Quebec has actually sort of set an outline for how the separatism would actually occur. Um, and, and I don't know if you can speak to, uh, you know, how true or accurate that statement is, but. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so it is interesting because, you know, basically the, the problem, one of the major problems for Alberta is that they can't get pipelines built. They have more capacity to, to produce oil than the ability to ship it out. And so they're just basically stuck losing money on oil. Um, Trudeau takes the public position that he's for pipelines, but then behind the do closed doors, he does like everything he can um, to, to shut them down. There's been four major pipelines that have failed because um, of you know regulations or you know, new policies or, or bans um, that have come from the federal government. And then Trudeau can just kind of like shrug his shoulders and say like, oh, it's not my fault, I'm trying. So he's appeasing the sort of environmental left uh, while also, you know, sort of uh, at least on the surface trying to appease like centrist Canadians who would be for like promoting Canadian industry, making sure that our infrastructure was there to to help uh, make sure the economy keeps moving. Um, so, 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 so that was that was on Trudeau. Um, sorry, can you remind me what the second part of that uh, question was? Yeah, it was just sort of um, the actual, like the functional side of of separating. Oh, right. That the Quebec, history Quebec. with Quebec had actually sort of laid some of that out. Um, I yeah, I was just wondering. Yeah, how... yeah, no, it's interesting because what you do see is a bit of bitterness um, on behalf of Albertans towards Quebec, and I, I definitely sense that, and I hear it a lot. Um, I, I, I always sort of took the different perspective, which is that because Quebec is part of Canada, Canada has always had to be a very decentralized country. Like, like the the, the provinces have a lot of power, the provinces have a lot of stake. You know, m most of the policies are under the provincial jurisdiction, which is the opposite of, of our American neighbors, um, where you have like a really strong federal government and the state governments don't do that much. Um, Canada's is better in that way. And it's, it is because of Quebec, because Quebec has sort of like a special status and they do a lot of their own programs and they, they kind of have their own unique uh, cultural identity and traditions. And so in that regard, it, it's good. Um, but as far as the sort of separatist movement, I mean, it, it, Quebec has been very skillful um, in sort of setting up a country uh, that gives them a lot of concessions, a lot of resources, a lot of money coming in from the rest of Canada, primarily from, from, from Alberta. Um, and I think that's where the sort of bitterness does stem from. Yeah, the transfer um, payments but, is what you're referring to, right? Yeah, the equalization. Or the equalization um, I think. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I can't remember exactly what the statistic is. I know that since 1960, Alberta has net, net contribution to the federal government has been $630 billion. And I think during that same time, like Quebec has been a net um, contributor of something similar, something around $500 billion. So Quebec has a really a sweet deal um, on top of that. You know, they have guaranteed numbers of Supreme Court justices, guaranteed to have a quarter of the Senate seats. Um, you know, a lot of the, the sort of institutions in Canada are tilted towards Quebec, even the fact that you have to sort of be bilingual to, to work in so many of these federal um, jobs and, and to work in the federal government. It's all kind of there to help benefit uh, Quebec. Um, but as far as the question of, of separatism, I mean, I think the reality is that Quebec was never really serious <laughs> about separating. I mean, may, maybe some people were, but, but of the sort of major Quebec separatist leaders, 
basically they were using it as leverage. Um, they wanted more out of the Canadian Confederation and they were successful in that. Um, there have been some questions around the sort of Clarity Act and what it would take for Quebec to be able to separate. You know, is it uh, a referendum? Is it 50% of the population plus one? And, and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really not an expert on that, <laughs> that aspect of the Constitution and whether it would sort of create way for, for Alberta um, to, to sort of legally separate. Um, but, but I know that, that when it comes to the sort of idea behind Alberta separatism, um, you know, in, in, well, in Quebec, it's, it's a cultural argument saying, you know, we want our independence because we are a, a distinct nation. Uh, for Alberta, it's much more of like an economic argument and then, you know, stemming from economics. Um, but, but basically, Alberta has the resources to actually be a, a, a self-sufficient country, whereas I don't, I don't oh, think wow. Quebec ever would be. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's funny how like when we, you know, polarizing ideas is what is the business of politics. And like, <laughs> even when I saw on, on your, um, on your website, uh, True North, you guys posted, you guys had a blog post by Kosman. I, I can't pronounce his last name. It's Georgia. Georgia, really? <laughs> Which is not at all how it's spelled. Georgia. Okay. Georgia. Okay. Wow. Because it's spelled D Z. Uh, Z-S-U-R-D-Z-S-A. Okay, Z-S-A. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, it's, it's very, very Eastern European where the letters don't make sense okay. with the phonetics at all. <laughs> the syllables are, are missing almost. All right, well, well, well um, the, the, it was a really good post. And basically, um, he was basically arguing that um, the polarization between uh, Camilla Harris and Leslyn Lewis... Um, and the fact that uh, both of them uh, made history as the first black females to run in their respective positions, um, right? Uh, Camilla Harris being a, Demo a Democrat and uh, Leslie Lewis being a conservative. Could you speak on that on that blog post in, in your? Yeah, sure. Well, one of the things uh, we try to do at True North is you know show the other side of the story, and sometimes that's by showing hypocrisy in the mainstream <laughs> media. So. We, we, we do it a lot where we analyze different CBC reports or we look at the sort of numbers behind them uh, to, to try to convey, you know, what we what we know to be true, which is that the CBC has has a problem and it's biased. Right. So I, I thought this was a great story that Cosman uh, came up with, which was that, you know, th these two women, both very impressive in their own right, inspiring sort of, you know, shattering glass ceilings and whatnot. Uh, one is American and one is Canadian. Uh, so which one do you think the CBC covers more? Well, lo and behold, uh, no surprise, uh, there were 500% more headlines about Kamala Harris than there were about Leslie Lewis, which, you know, I, I, I think it goes to, to show two sort of core uh, problems with the CBC. The first one is that they're obsessed with American news. They're obsessed with American politics. I mean, this is a network that we pay $1.2 billion of Canadian taxpayer money to. The whole idea is that they are supposed to tell Canadian stories and relay the Canadian perspective. But well, if you turn on sorry, the CBC... Hold on, sorry. Um, mm -hmm. So why, why are we paying <laughs> the CBC um, and not paying the Sixth Sense Report or True North? 
<laughs> that's that a good question, right? And CBC likes to pretend that they somehow have a monopoly on being able to do d dedicated journalism and, and reliable, objective reporting. And, and we know it's not true, right? So, so why does the CBC report on the U.S. so much? I mean, you could watch the CBC News any night, turn it on, you know, almost guarantee the top two, three, four stories will all be about the U.S., especially, you know, during a time right now where there's, you know, riots and civil unrest in the United States or when Trump may or may not have said something about, uh, you know, peaceful, uh, peacefully transferring power after an election. Um, you know, they're obsessed with the United States. And I think a big reason for it is because it distracts from problems that we have here at home. Like Canadians love to feel good about the fact that, um, yeah, we, we might have problems in Canada, but look at how dysfunctional the United States is. Um, well, you know, look, look, look at the problems they have. And it allows us to feel a little bit better uh, about, about what's happening mm -hmm. here at home in Canada. Mm -hmm. It allows them to avoid <laughs> the kind of scrutiny against someone like Justin Trudeau, who, you know, most people at CBC like Trudeau. They don't want to you know, completely dissect him and criticize him and give him the kind of scrutiny that they give Trump because it could probably lead to him losing elections. And they wouldn't like that because it could affect how much money the CBC gets or it could lead to, you know, heaven forbid, another conservative government in Canada. And so, you know, you see this sort of obsession with the United States. And that, that's the first problem with the CBC. Uh, the second problem is that they don't really understand conservatives. They don't really connect with them. They don't really, they're, they're not really represented by, by, by conservatives. So mo most people who work at CBC come from, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, they live downtown. They're sort of urban, uh, left-leaning, sort of middle-class. They, they, they fit into like a very small cultural box. And anyone who falls outside that, be it, you know, a religious person, someone from a rural part of the country, someone who's not part of the middle class. Uh, you know, there, there, there are all these people who, who just don't really fit into the CBC narrative and don't really fit into that world. And then they don't really know how to cover them. So you have someone like um, Leslie Lewis, who is an incredibly impressive woman. I mean, she has a PhD. She's a lawyer. She's had a successful career. You know, she, she's come out of nowhere. And as an incredibly successful sort of rookie politician. Uh, she made it into the final four in terms of uh, the conservative leadership race. She, she actually finished third, almost finished second, um, given that she's basically unheard of. She doesn't have a political background at all. Um, but, you know, she's on the right, she's religious, she's pro-life. Uh, and because of that, the CBC doesn't really want to celebrate her. Uh, her values don't align with theirs perfectly, and therefore the, the, the worst thing you can really do is just ignore someone, and that's what they do. I mean, Cosman's report, I think, found that there were only three mentions of Leslie Lewis in, in CBC headlines. Um, compare that to, to over 30 about Kamala Harris, and I mean, just imagine how many headlines there are, you know, on a daily basis about liberal politicians in Canada or, you know, people in Trudeau's inner circle. And yet, you know, Leslie Lewis is running to be like prime minister of the country and she almost won. And she only got three mentions by the CBC. I think that's a major problem. And it does show the hypocrisy over at the CBC. Yeah. And I think, you know, based on a lot of the, the left ideology, she'd probably be the worst candidate for him to run against him. 
um, if if another election was to come about. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so and, and who would be the worst candidate? Sorry, oh, Leslin Lewis. Oh, okay. Like just based on you know the the I'll say the virtue signaling that the left does, you sort of you end up in a place where you're sort of having to walk a very thin line if if it's Trudeau versus you know um, Leslin Lewis. Well, can you imagine? I mean, I think it would have been wild uh, and interesting to see how they kind of square that circle because you know we're told that Trudeau is is a sort of SJW uh, prime minister. He's the one that went to the Black Lives Matter protests and kneeled alongside the protesters. You know, he, he's the one that supposedly uh, touts diversity and says diversity is our strength. And and you know, having having him run against a, a black woman, I, th- I think it would it would just completely highlight that. I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I think that would have been a really interesting, compelling election. Oh yeah, no, definitely, it would definitely force. Uh, the conversation that needs that needs to be had about uh, black people um, and being conservative and, and conservative thought and is that possible and, and can it be done and really looking at okay well does the conservative party have a diversity issue can black people be conservative yeah, but I, I think, well, I, I know this conversation is being hashed out in the United States. I don't know if you guys follow people like uh, Candace Owens um, or, you know, even, even some of the stuff that Kanye West is doing to sort of challenge this, this, this idea that if you're black, you have to be on the left or you have to be a Democrat or you have to be a liberal. You know, I, 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 haven't, I can't say that I am like a deep partisan conservative, but I've certainly been to quite a few different conservative conventions. And, you know, I think that the, the number one sort of core value that the conservatives hold typically um, is, you know, they're, they're, they're very connected to their families, they're usually religious, um, or they come from sort of a religious background. And just, you know, by virtue of the, the makeup of Canada, a lot of the people who end up going and supporting the Conservative Party are new immigrants, new Canadians, uh, people that, that have come to Canada that have their sort of strong traditional religious views that, you know, very sort of independent and entrepreneurial and sort of oriented towards small businesses. You kind of have to be to be an immigrant to, to take the risk of, you know, moving with your family to to a whole new country that you've, that you've never lived in before and starting anew. I mean, that's you have to sort of be a risk taker to do that. And I, th- I think that a lot, of, a lot of the people that I've seen at conservative conventions and in conservative politics, it, you know, it, it's, sort, it's sort of just, just like the rest of the Canadian makeup. It's people from all over the world. Um, and some of the sort of strongest, most ardent conservatives, uh, in my experience, have been newcomers. Uh, no, I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, looking at like... I was on IJ's show and uh, we discussed um, being a black conservative. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Joel. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I was on the show um, discussing that idea, and the one of the things I wanted to dispel was, you know, there's a stigma that conservatives are a different kind of black people. They're not really black. Um, you know, some would use the, the 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 term of Uncle Tom or a coon, but when I was on, I, I was just trying to show IJ and to the listeners that um, I've experienced racism numerous times, and and I give numerous accounts of my run-ins with the police and being detained and all these op- 
situations where I re- was being profiled and discriminated against. Um, but at the same time, I still hold a conservative view of the world where I believe in agency of, of a human being, the, the ability to make your own decision. I believe um, that you know you work hard, be financially literate, and you can do a lot versus asking white people to share their privilege with you. Uh, and I'm, I'm as normal or as black as black can be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so I, I just trying to dispel that myth that, um, it isn't a special kind of person, black person, that's a conservative. That's yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think, I think that there's sort of a lot there that you, that you can kind of unpack, but I'll, I'll just pick up on the idea that, well, a, a couple things. I mean, you said that you've personally been stopped by police and uh, detained. You know, had detained. Deta- detained, detained by police. That's scary. In Canada? Yes. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I mean, that kind of thing is, I mean, I don't know the circumstances or anything like that, but obviously, you know, there's issues and there, and, and there are problems. But I, th- I think the sort of main difference is, is the way you look at it. You know, do you, do you see yourself as a victim of society that that society owes you something or do you want to like you said take ownership and say you know i'm i'm in charge of my own life i'm not gonna allow a racist cop or some jackass on the subway or, or someone that you know that that's their problem basically right it's not your problem and you you know you you decided that you want to you know be the driver of your own life i, th- I just think that's so important and one of my biggest concerns with this whole movement towards um, you know, c- talking about the police brutality and, and it leading to protests and riots on the streets is that we're, we're basically teaching a whole generation of people that they're victims, um, that, that no matter what, they can't succeed because the system is out to get them, um, and, you know, encouraging them uh, to blame other people for, for, for their own lives. And I think that, that what conservatives need to do is fight back against that message and push the opposite message, which is, yes, we can affect change. And, you know, the best way to affect change is, is to be successful in your own right and to, you know, continue to, 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 to be in charge of your own life. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think that's just like yeah. a far better message in general. No, I, I agree. And I, and I feel like, well, to give more context to, to me being detained, and I think it's all about um, taking into account the variables that come into play in, in daily human interaction. So for example, um, when I was detained um, a couple of days before, there was a shooting by a black male and they posted the images of him um, on, you know, on TV. And so I was dressed like him. I was dressed like him. Um, I had a blue jays fitted on and a black hoodie. Um, but that's what most young people wear um, right. who, who are from Toronto, right? You, 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 you right. wear your city's baseball cap and a black hoodie. That's standard. Um, but yeah, I, I fit, I know it sounds cliche, but I, I fit the description. Mm-hmm. Um, and the officer just said, yeah, you got to come with me. And it's so funny because I'd gone through it so many times, I already knew what was going on. I was like, all right, cool. And, okay. I, and, and I was detained. And all I asked was that, make sure you write me a note. So when I go to work, because we have a zero tolerance late policy, that my boss knows that I was detained um, versus me saying, oh, well, it's because I'm black. That's why, you know, it's because um, you're racist and you're detaining me. Well, no, there was a shooting. I look like the guy. So I have to come in for questioning. Done. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I guess I've kind of heard a similar, this is sort of anecdotal, but like, you know, say, say I'm driving down the street and I get pulled over and the cop gives me a hard time and I end up getting a ticket for like, you know, having expired uh, plates or something like that. I, I, I might walk away from that interaction and be like, man, that cop was a jerk. That cop was, you know, out of line and he was mean and maybe he was a little sexist. I don't know. Uh, whereas if that happened to you, you know, you might be inclined to say like, hey, wait a minute, did I get pulled over because of my race? You know, and, and you don't know, right? And, and, that, and that, that, that is part of the problem. But I, I, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. I've never talked about this publicly, but uh, when I was like, I think 18 or 19, a friend of mine, uh, we were up in Banff and it was, we were two girls. We were staying there. We went to a bar. We got a little drunk. We were walking out <laughs> after the bar. Okay. And we were with a big group of guys, right? right? We had just met these guys at the bar. We didn't know them yeah. or whatever. Um, anyway, we, I, th I think some of the people in the group were carrying open alcohol. Um, we, we got pulled over. A police officer came up to us and basically said, like, who are you? Where are you staying? What are you doing? Um, the cop took me and my friend and arrested us, basically. He, he brought us to, like, uh, detainment. They left all the guys and took the two girls, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, we stayed there for like an hour or so, and then they drove us back to our hotel. Um, you know, I wonder like, hey, wh why did they pull us over? Why did they Why did they arrest these two girls? We weren't doing anything. We weren't drunk. We weren't, you know, public. It wasn't like public um, intoxication, drunkenness yeah. or anything like that. We, didn't, we weren't holding alcohol bottles. They let all these guys go and they took the two girls. And you know, the next day we're talking about it and it's like, you know, I guess those cops were probably just trying to protect us. They were trying to like keep us away from those guys. Maybe they knew who they were or maybe they were just sort of concerned. But, you know, it, it was sort of like a, a weird, you know, you can imagine like, hey, that's kind of like a weird abuse of power. Why would the police like kind of arrest us when we hadn't done anything? Well, we didn't resist it or anything. We were like kids. And, you know, I, I do think that sometimes police just sort of act in not arbitrary ways, but in, in ways that you can't really understand. And you can look at it and say, were they being sexist? Were they being unfair? Why do they do it that way? Um, and, but then you kind of think, okay, they're just trying to do their job and keep keep the peace, I guess. I don't yeah, know. Like, I take your saying, like, do we assume malice or do we assume they made a judgment call that maybe we just don't understand? Um, and, and I know for me, like, you know, I've been on, like, I'll say somewhat of an anti-police brutality, you know, criticizing of the police for for you know five years ten years and so mm -hmm. you know when when the racial piece comes up a lot of times i get frustrated because i'm like you're detach you're actually argue potentially you're detracting from the bigger issues that kind of create some of the environments right so you know examples like qualified immunity police unions and how are they influencing the environment and and you know i always say like yes you know are would a would a racist cop uh, be a problem is is there a potential that there are racist cops absolutely but if you're really looking at a systemic issue um, with policing there's much bigger conversations that that you actually don't have if you sort of narrow down on a, a racialized problem because you're you're looking for a racial solution um, and so I mean that's sort of my frustration with all of this that we stop having the bigger conversation about how do we do justice enforcement in a just manner yeah, and, and right. we, we narrow it down to to specific injustices. Yeah, but I think, and again, I, you know, we're not saying that for the listeners. We're not saying that you know, sexism doesn't exist or racism doesn't exist. Um, but there's a there's a 
we have to be um, genuine and honest and gracious in, in, in our thought process in regards to the factors that come into play. And, there, and there's just sometimes there's variables that that you have to factor in and you can't just wipe the board clean and just say, OK, well, no, it, it's got to be racism because it's a white cop and it's a black guy or it's it's a it's a white male and and, and it's a woman. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that there are sort of issues of both. Right. There's cases of both. I think that there are instances where an individual cop is racist and they act out of line or they are sexist and they do something totally inappropriate. Totally. And they should be reprimanded. But my, my, my concern, again, to go back to the thing I was raising earlier, is when we tell like a whole generation of young people that are out there protesting and rioting right now that the problem is that, you know, all, right, all, all cops are racist, that, that there is systemic racism in society, that society's out to get you, that the institutions are stacked against you. So even if you do everything right, you won't be successful because... And, and you know, you, you read a lot of really loaded statements that get put into, into media um, reports, you know, like accusing Canada or the U.S. of genocide and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, like really, really loaded terms. And it's like, it's, 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 it's so dishonest and also inflammatory. Like, I, I, I think it's, it's dangerous, the, the kind of message that they're sending. Yes. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. just kind of give, give you more an example. I mean, there's a huge gun problem in Toronto right now. There's been record numbers of shootings. I think last year, um, the city of Toronto had more shootings than New York City, which, you know, kind of blows your mind in terms of the sort of stereotypes about the two cities, right? Like New York is this kind of gritty, dangerous city and Toronto is this like clean, happy utopia. And the idea that there's actually like a huge gun problem up here, you know, right after Justin Trudeau has banned all kinds of different scary looking assault rifles, it's like, you know, what 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 is By the issue with counsel. guns? Right, right. Without, without <laughs> Parliament sitting, right? But it's like, why, why can't we talk about the gun problem in, in Toronto? Where did it come from? Where did it stem from? Does it have anything to do with policies, um, you know, in the past that have gotten rid of, you know, police, uh, proactive policing or the issue of carding, which, uh, you know, we learned about through a Toronto Star report and we were told that it was a racist policy. We had to get rid of it. We got rid of it. And, and, and then, you know, in the years after, we've had this huge surge of, of gang violence and gun death. Um, so uh, this might be a bit of a weird question that's got a lot of base to it, but you know, before you were talking a bit about you know how the the media and and the, we've sort of moved away from from actually having conversations about issues that are going on, um, and and I think to my, in my opinion, I mean, you laid out a bit about COVID, how that's kind of happening, and I think about. You know, uh, when we were we actually went on IJ show together, we were sort of talking about individual rights versus collective rights, and so that sort of resonates to me the the libertarianism, conservatism, and, and I know you've sort of gone down that you know come back towards conservatism a bit, and so I'm wondering if you know one if you could sort of talk about that transition, but I'm also wondering how much the lack of conversation around let's say the the covid measures has maybe stirred up a little bit of your libertarianism to kind of you know what are we doing here right because there's a lack of of freedom for people uh, right now oh yeah I, I don't know how anyone in Canada or the Western world is not a libertarian right now I'm just wondering like hey what about my like basic rights here like I, I'm being told by my government that I can't leave my house like <laughs> what happened to like you know our basic freedoms and and all that kind of thing but yeah you know I was pretty libertarian back in the day I um I, I would say when I was in university I was more of just like a 
uh, you know, knee-jerk liberal kind of uh, believed that the government should always be doing something and that we could solve all the problems in the world just through more, you know, will and more government action. And I think that, you know, the, the real world is really, um, you know, filled with incompetent people who, who can't even solve problems in their own lives, let alone these like grand visions that they have for the world. Um, so, so I, I became pretty libertarian and got into you know, reading like Hayek and Bastiat and Mises and all this kind of stuff and became like pretty, pretty hardcore libertarian. Um, and, 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 and I still have a lot of those beliefs, especially on the economic side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say this sort of two experiences that led me more towards, uh, being a conservative and being comfortable calling myself a conservative, uh, was certainly like, you know, I went and worked for the Canadian government in, in the Department of Immigration. And I can say when I started that job, I pretty much believed in, in having open borders. Um, the idea of like supply and demand that if there were jobs and as long as there were people who are willing to come and work, uh, the Canadian government shouldn't stop anyone uh, as long as they were sort of willing to, to follow the rules and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, th- I think that sort of ignores the reality, two, two realities. Uh, one, you know, obviously we have a huge generous welfare state, so you, you, you can't simultaneously say like to the whole world, hey, you guys can come live here, uh, while also saying, you know, we're going to give you everything you need in terms of healthcare, education, social services. Yeah, you might run a half a trillion dollar budget deficit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it's sort of like, you know, the reality is the economics don't really make sense. And then, of course, you have people that have bad intentions that want to take advantage of, of your country. You know, like I said, a lot of my reporting and journalism is focused on sort of international terror groups and terror cells and the way they manipulate free governments and free societies um, to advance their causes. You kind of like, it's like a wake up call, like, oh, wow, you know, not everyone is as sort of idealistic and uh, honest, let's say. Uh, as as we Canadians are, and you have to kind of be guarded against that. Um, but then also just the idea that, you know, if you're going to have a country, a, a country is sort of based on the idea of shared values, shared identity, um, a shared commitment to like a prosperous future together. And, you know, if, if, if you don't if you don't believe in that sort of sense of community and that those values are what holds us together as a society, I mean, you know, is Canada, uh, I think Yann Martel, who's the um, a great author, um, but he described Canada as sort of the world's greatest hotel. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and you kind of say, you know, really, like, like is, is that where you want to live? You know, not even in the comfort of your own home, in a community, in a family where, where, where you have like a shared bond with people, but you know, just a hotel where people can come and go and they get nice luxury services and then they go on their way. Like, you know, it's almost an insult um, to the idea of, 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 of a community that we all share. And so, so, so that, that sort of sense came. And then I think for me, the second one was definitely, you know, getting married and having a family and having kids. It's like, ch- it changes your perspective of the world because, you know, you're no longer just thinking in terms of you as an individual. You're thinking of, again, your, your family, your future, the community, the kind of world that you want to live in, the kind of community that you want your children to be raised in. And I, th- I think that that kind of takes you away from just sort of pure libertarian individualism and gets you thinking more in terms of, you know, what what kind of values should we promote as a society? In Canada, we have an activist government that's really involved in, you know, pushing cultural initiatives, pushing ideas of, of, of community. And it's like, 
are, are we going to kind of just abandon those ideas and let liberals set the course or or should conservatives have a say as well? Should we have policies designed to make sure that, you know, uh, mothers are able to spend time with their children if they want to, that that, that women have choices, that, that, that the families are protected um, and all those kind of things. And so I think that those were sort of two experiences that, that pushed me more towards just being like, you know, a regular conservative uh, and not so much uh, an individualist and, and a libertarian. Yeah, what's what's funny is I think um, there's there's a quote that I usually say, and I think it resonates with a lot of what you said, which is like in my family I'm a socialist. I said like within my city I'm a liberal. Within my what I usually say my my province I'm a you know conservative, and you know on the federal level I'm I'm a libertarian. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know the, the I think the one thing that you know going back to to what's been going on with covid and all this that you know the lack of the idea of subsidiary sort of pushing these decisions down to the most local level that make the most sense um you know you think about you know you know you think about western canada uh, about all the people that live so spread out being told like stay at home based on you know a more federal response when you know, really, we've got a couple of hotbeds that maybe they need to have a much different policy than the rest of the province or than the rest of the country. Um, and so, yeah, I just wonder if you can you know, maybe bring the libertarian slash, you know, the the COVID lack of conversation, um, you know, to, to what your thoughts were on that. Uh, I mean, I know you talked on it a bit about the lack of conversation, um, but I, I'm wondering, you know, when it, when it comes to masks, when it, I mean, you sort of talked about mandatory vaccines a little bit, but but in terms of the entire COVID response, I mean, obviously Trudeau shut down government and it's been sort of almost a dictator level of, of way of doing yeah. things. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, it, it, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, we live in this huge, sparse, diverse country, and yet we have this sort of one-size-fits-all approach coming down. You know, the, the, the major problems cl- clearly seem to be in long-term care facilities and areas uh, with very vulnerable elderly people. And so how does that translate to, you know, closing down schools and closing down malls and closing down small businesses or, yeah, looking at things in, in the prairies where there were hardly any cases. I mean, there were virtually no cases in Atlantic Canada. Um, eventually, there probably will be. But... It, yeah, I, I mean, what, what, what I see is a colossal sort of failure on behalf of the expert class, the, the, the people who are supposed to be, um, you know, telling us what to do and, and, and experts in their field. Uh, what we've really seen is just flip-flops, uh, inconsistencies, contradictions across the board. Um, it, it, it has all of the makings of like a populist revolt because Canadians are just basically being told what to do. And I think Canadians are, by and large, very sort of law-abiding, rule-following people. Um, they, they they do what they're told and, and they take orders seriously and no one wants to catch COVID and no one wants to get sick and they sort of understand that. But at the same time, I mean, sooner or later, you're, you're just going to have mass frustration over, over these rules, especially oh, if, as Trudeau hinted, we're heading into another, you know, second wave and another lockdown. I mean, I just can't imagine another six months that were like the six months before with it without some kind of a reprieve. Like, I think people are going to go crazy and you're, you're going to see really, really, really big social problems uh, c- coming to the forefront. So I think politicians should tread a lot more carefully. They should have a lot more faith in the common sense of, of Canadian people. Uh, let Canadians get back to work, obviously have precautions and have guidelines and have some kinds of new rules. But 
I mean, <laughs> at the same time, you know, w w w we should we should also learn that COVID was not nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be. It's not nearly as deadly as we initially thought. Um, like we, we should all take a, a deep breath and realize that there's a lot of dangerous things in the world. There are a lot of things that could kill us. And yet we still go on with our daily lives. You know, we don't, yeah, we don't have a five mile per hour speed limit, right? Like, you know, we, 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 we take risks every day by going outside and going out of our homes. Um, that's sort of just the reality of the world. And instead of coddling us and treating us like infants and giving us all kinds of ridiculous rules, yeah, we should be treated as, as adults and as citizens and sort of responsible people that can make our own decisions. And, you know, if we want to open up our businesses and, and our customers want to come in and shop, then, then you should let us. Like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. enough of this sort of overt um, nanny paternalism. I, th I, th I think, I, th I, think I, I would like to hear a lot more people speak out against that uh, as opposed to just more of like, okay, well, we, we got to bunker down and do it all again, like for the, for the greater good. They probably are, but CBC is probably not voicing their opinions. <laughs> well, and I think th this is where, you know, before when you were talking about True North sort of being in, let's say that transition from uh, like somewhat more academically oriented to, to being more news oriented and, and translating, I think uh, to me, that's actually one of the biggest frustrations with all of this. You know, one, they went to like, I use the term like N of one, right? So they keep telling us examples of bad stories, which from the news, you know, mainstream media, it's just like, okay, if we sell fear, more people are going to want to hear about that than the guy who's 95 years old and got over it and he's healthy and, you know, there's nothing to fear, right? So there's the, the mainstream media sort of leans towards, you know, selling fear because it's going to pull more attention. Um, but what I've noticed is is sort of the lack of translation, right? So, for example, cases is probably one of the the worst pieces of data we could be giving the population. It's such a raw data point. You know, it's technically supposed to be a proxy for new infections, which we know are delayed by five to 14 days. Not to mention that, I don't know if, how much this is the case in Canada, but the, the idea of like people testing over and over again because they have to get two positive tests before they go back to work and, and we're not deduplicating those that data. So every pop positive test is counted as a new case when in reality it right. might be the same case testing five times. Um, and then I think the last thing also, you know, the, the margins of error, all of these things taking into account to say, you know, why are we using this really crappy data point as a metric to evaluate what's going on right now? And, and to me, I look at it like, you know, it's it's totally the the news, which is supposed to translate the data into what's palatable for the people, is not actually at all being done because they're not giving context to what does this data point even mean? Right. It's it's sort of scaremongering. I mean, you're right, and and I, I hadn't even it hadn't even occurred to me that they were doing it that way. I hadn't I hadn't read about that, but we know that you know most people who get COVID are asymptomatic, or at least many people are, so they would never go and get tested anyway. So. You know, the number of people who test positive is almost completely arbitrary just based on who is motivated to go in and have them stick like a, you know, 10 inch uh, cotton swab up your nose. And uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've had to do it three times now because every time you go to the Bahamas, you have to have a, a, a negative test to get in. But it's not pleasant. I mean, I wouldn't go and do it for fun. So. The, the idea that, that that would be how we measure, you're, you're right, it's, it's totally absurd. And it, it kind of reminds me of, of Bastiat, uh, Frederick Bastiat, the economist. One of the things that he points out is just sort of the seen and the unseen. 
And, you know, we, we always look at the, the initial, the scene, uh, which is the number of COVID deaths. They're telling us there's a second wave going on. I mean, the second wave right now includes six people all across Canada dying, six deaths, three of them here in Ontario or there in Ontario. I'm usually in Ontario, Ontario, two of them in Alberta. Um, you know, d during that same time, uh, how many how many people have died from other things? How many people have died because they can't go and get the surgery they need because the hospitals are still prioritizing COVID or they haven't been able to get the cancer treatment that they need because, again, hospitals aren't doing those kinds of procedures right now. I mean, that there, there, there are so many unseen deaths. Uh, how about the number of suicides or the number of opioid uh, overdoses and deaths because people don't have jobs and they don't have any meaning in their life? Like, like why, why is it that we're so focused on the one issue that's really hot and, and really, you know, everyone's scared and everyone's obsessing over it? Um, and we're so focused on protecting lives on that side, but what about the lives that are caused as a sort of unintended consequence of all the crazy, crazy policies that we've implemented? Uh, there, there just doesn't really seem to be any balance in terms of, of what we care about, what we look at, what we focus on, and I think that that's something that, that, that really uh, needs to be addressed and corrected. Okay, so thank you, Candice. Uh, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, I know I've learned a lot. Uh, would you let our listeners know how they can get in contact with you and uh, links to follow on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, thanks so much to both Darnell and Joel. It's been such a pleasure to sit down with you guys and talk about every, it seems like we touched on pretty much every issue out there. So it's been a lot of fun. But yeah, if, if listeners want to find out more about True North, uh, our, our website is tnc.news. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, kind of all over the place. YouTube as well. Just just Google True North or Candace Malcolm and you'll be able to find my stuff. Okay, great. Uh, again, thank you. And hopefully uh, we get a chance to do this again. Yeah, definitely. We should uh, do it in person if... Uh, COVID restrictions ever go away and we're all back in Toronto, we should uh, do it in person. Oh, most definitely, most definitely. All right. Okay, take care, Daniel. Thanks. Thanks again. But you heard me? Does that make sense?